0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. This week, a Virginia Tech researcher challenges deeply held ideas about the purity of natural springs.
1: The problem with spring water is that it's generally not truly spring water. It's often not even truly groundwater. It's surface water that has sunk under the ground and reemerged.
0: And prices are going up everywhere. But inflation is particularly tough in eastern Kentucky which is still recovering from last summer's floods.
2: Things are double now what they was two years ago. Uh, Poor people, you know, they just can't afford it.
0: Plus, the folks behind Angelo's Old World Italian Sausage still use a family recipe that goes back over a century.
2: Customers love it. And they're like, man, I've never tasted anything like this before. So yeah, so go put your corporate sausage down and get some really good stuff here that has no preservatives in it.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia.
3: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, building on West Virginia's proud history of powering the nation by bringing solar power to the coal fields. More at SolarHoller.com. Welcome
0: to inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. You know, one of my favorite parts of Appalachia is the folk culture. Um, and I love our folkways stories. It's because it's about connection and passing traditions between people. But also, it's what makes Appalachia what it is. One of our most prolific folkways reporters is Zach Harold. Zach, what's up?
4: Well, it's great to be here, Mason. Um, tell me, are there any traditions, food traditions in your family? recipes that, that you've got fond memories of that kind of span the ages of time that connect various generations.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about I was thinking about my dad's mom's oyster casserole or oyster dressing, her oyster dressing. Yeah, my dad's mom used to make dressing with and without oysters and the oyster
4: versions kind of faded since she passed away. Well, I've I've got a story that's kind of similar to that. A recipe that this family can trace all the way back to the Calabria region of Italy, where they originally came from and immigrated here to the United States and West Virginia with them. It became kind of a community staple. And then it faded away as, you know, modernity uh, encroached on, on some of these traditions, but is now seeing something of a revival.
0: So immigrants coming to Appalachia, their cultural traditions mingling and fading in and out, that sounds like Appalachia in a nutshell, Zach.
4: It's not Appalachia in a nutshell. It's Appalachia in a sausage casing.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it! Oh my god,
4: I can't wait to hear it. Let me take you to a, a little cottage in the Canal City neighborhood of Charleston, West Virginia. So we're going to make a little a mix here that's
2: that's not mild or not hot, somewhere in between. How do you like it? I'll eat anything. Okay,
4: so. Louis Argento is elbow deep in a mixing bowl filled with ground pork and a closely guarded blend of spices. His dad, Sonny Argento, is supervising.
2: How hey, do you say fennel in Italian?
5: Finocchio. Finocchio. This is crushed fennel. No, this is a whole fennel. No, whole fennel, I mean. I'm sorry. It
2: is not crushed fennel. Most Italian sausages have um, uh, use crushed fennel. We use whole seed, and you can actually see it.
4: We're in the dining room of Sonny's tidy little house in Charleston, West Virginia. Louis and Sonny are introducing me to the Argento family sausage, a recipe that's brought pride and acclaim to their Italian clan for nearly a century. Usually, once the meat is mixed together, the family stuffs it into natural sausage casings. But this time, Louie patties the mixture out like hamburger and throws it in a skillet. The Argentos like their sausage on pizza, in spaghetti sauce, or served on a hoagie bun, but they'll eat it for any meal of the day.
2: Uh, We like it with fried eggs and applesauce in the morning. You know, apples and pork generally goes well together. So we do applesauce or fried apples even better uh, with some toast on the side.
4: Sonny is 82 now, and he's been eating this stuff all his life. The recipe came from his mother's family, who hailed from the Calabria region of Italy. He grew up hearing stories about how his grandfather made it in the old country. So they would chop the pork
5: up with a with a knife with knives. I mean they didn't have any electricity, they couldn't grind the pork, so they would chop it up as fine as they could get it, which wasn't very fine. Mixed the seasoning in it, and he had a hollowed out cow horn, he would put my grandmother would clean the casings. If you don't know what a casing is, I'm not going to tell
4: you. I'll tell you. They're intestines. <laughs> Natural sausage casings are animal intestines.
5: But she would clean the casings really well. And he would skinny him up on the the cow horn and stuff it with his thumb.
4: Sonny's mother eventually taught the recipe to his father, Angelo Argento. His side of the family came from Sicily. Angelo actually came to West Virginia from Sicily when he was six years old. He became a coal miner at just 13. But when he wasn't below ground, Angelo was working for a local grocery store. By the time he was 26, he left the mines to start a store of his own, three and a half miles up Palton Holler in Fayette County. He called the little shop A. Argento & Company.
5: He said two men could stand fingertip to fingertip, and the other hands could touch the wall. But yet he sold almost everything in there.
4: That store only existed for about five years before it burned to the ground. Angelo didn't have any insurance, and he didn't have much in the way of savings. But he was already so well-known for his work ethic and honesty that a bank in Montgomery loaned him the money to build a new store on little more than a handshake. He called this store... Angelo's Market. This guy had a
5: fourth-grade education, but nobody's fool, and you weren't going to beat him out of a nickel. In
4: 1960, young Sonny Argento found himself stationed in the mountains of Turkey with the U.S. Air Force. He was 20 years old, away from Fayette County, West Virginia for the first time, and chronically homesick. He borrowed another airman's reel-to-reel tape deck and recorded an audio message for his family back home. When they got it, they borrowed a reel-to-reel to make a recording of their own and mailed Sonny the tape. <laughs> I think my mother says the first words.
1: Hi Sonny, how are you?
4: Everybody in the family passed around the microphone telling them about ball games they won, and report cards they got, and colds they caught. When it was Sonny's dad's turn, Angelo made sure to give an update on the family meat shop.
5: And My dad said, we made some pepperoni this oh. week. Boy, oh, you should have been here this week. We sure had some weather. It's been below zero. Nothing, I made some pepperoni the
4: other day. Pepperoni is what Angelo called his sausage. And it's
5: always
4: cold. When he heard the tape, Sonny says he immediately pictured his father's grocery store, the meat shop and its big metal sausage mill with the feet nailed to the wooden carving block. He could see his father spooning the fragrant mix of coarse ground pork and spices into one end and turning the crank. And he could see his mother on the other end, catching the long lengths of plump pink sausage as they spilled from the machine. Did very little to alleviate Sonny's homesickness. But after five years in the Air Force, he eventually made it back to Fayette County to help his father run the business. He took over completely in 1977, a few years before Angelo passed away. Sonny raised his five kids in that market, but you can probably guess where this is going. A small, family-owned store trying to stand against the tide of big-box mega-marts and the dollar stores that seemed to crop up in every Appalachian holler. More and more customers were lured away, and the Argentos just couldn't compete. Angelo's market closed in 2008 after more than 70 years in business. But here's the thing. The family didn't just lose the family business, as Louis Argento explained to me.
2: We had no need to go to Kroger or at Walmart or any other store to shop. And when our store closed, we realized, which kind of sparked our business of today, that there was no quality
4: Italian sausage in the stores. So they just kept making it, first in Sonny's kitchen and then in a makeshift meat shop they set up in his garage. Once family and friends found out, they started getting orders.
2: A lot of people, especially still the Italian-Americans around here, they like the sausage for their uh, Christmas dinners or holiday parties. So, um, next thing you know, we have an order for 500 pounds of
4: sausage. The demand was so great, Sonny decided maybe it was time to try a new kind of family business. There was a problem, though. It's fine to make sausage in your garage for family and friends, but the government doesn't really want you to sell it. Luckily, one of Sonny's friends owned a few grocery stores in Charleston and loaned the family the use of a meat shop. By making it there, the Argentos could sell their sausage in the store and offer it to local restaurants. They named their product Angelo's Old World Sausage. The label features an old photo of Sonny and his dad Angelo in ties and white aprons, grinning in front of the old store's meat case. They made the sausage in that grocery store meat shop for about two years, but they eventually outgrew the space. For one thing, they couldn't produce as much sausage as they needed, And because it wasn't a USDA-inspected processing facility, the Argentos couldn't sell their sausage in other stores. For a while, they considered building a factory of their own, but that was too big of an investment for such a small company. So they started looking around for a co-packer. After some searching, they found Wampler's Farm Sausage in Lenore City, Tennessee. It's also a family business, albeit one with a modern solar-powered meat processing facility attached.
5: And I saw all these guys in white coats, and a federal inspector walking around with their arms folded, and a tear came to my. I remember my mom and dad standing over the meat block making sausage and, and me helping them, and occasionally my mother would have to put her finger in it and touch it to her tongue and say, it needs more salt, and I'm thinking that we can't, we can no longer do that.
4: <laughs> Wampler's factory can turn out as much sausage as the Argentos will ever need. And everything is still made to the family's exacting standards, from the coarseness of the ground meat to the blend of spices that gives the sausage its flavor.
2: We sample every batch still. So, you know, we just want to, you know, as good as Wampler is, we want to make sure our sausage that our customers are buying is consistent.
4: Back in Sonny's kitchen, as the smell of fennel and fried pork filled the air, Louie told me the appeal of Angelo's sausage is as much about what doesn't go into it That's what does. There are no binders or additives like you might find in big commercial sausages and no preservatives.
2: And it's a joy to give people a bite of our sausage for the first time and see their face light up. And they're like, man, I've never tasted anything like this before. So, yeah, so go put your corporate sausage down and get some really good stuff here that, that has no preservatives in it.
4: But the same economic forces that put Angelo's market out of business make it difficult for Angelo's Old World Sausage, too. Their products are now available in about 30 stores in West Virginia, Ohio, and Kentucky. But that growth has been a struggle. Louis says it can be difficult to convince managers to carry their product when every square inch of a chain grocery store's meat case is rented out to major corporate producers. And Angelo's isn't a big enough player to get into the big box store's warehouses, so their sausage doesn't appear in shopping apps. That's left the Argento family to depend on a more grassroots approach, one based on word of mouth and some social media advertising and setting up taste tests in grocery stores. They're confident that if they can just convince folks to take a bite, they'll be hooked. Yeah,
5: well, you know, you want to take it in the dining room, Louie? Okay, yeah. I'll get you guys some utensils.
4: once the sausage was done Sonny and Louie set the table with a loaf of sandwich bread and a jar of their home pickled peppers peppers yeah as we dug in it was clear to see that even after a lifetime of eating this stuff Sonny and Louie don't just take pride in this family recipe they really enjoy eating it, and that's why they're pretty sure you will too
2: the big challenge is getting more people to try it And, and to realize that there is indeed a quality Italian sausage available in grocery stores. Sometimes, it might cost 25 or 50 cents more, but it's worth it.
5: You know, I'll see him or I'll say, you want to try a piece of a sausage? And he'll say, no thanks, and he'll just keep on going. I want to just run up and tap him on the shoulder and say, you don't know what you're missing. If you just give us a try.
4: Because at the end of the day, this isn't just sausage; it's the Argento family's most precious family heirloom. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harold in Charleston, West Virginia.
0: That story is part of our Folkways project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To hear that story again, or to listen to any of our other Folkways stories. Visit our website, wvpublic.org. It's an old story in Appalachia. Failing water systems, leaving people afraid to drink from their taps. It's true in McDowell County, West Virginia, where people have relied on bottled water and mountain springs for decades. But are those always the best sources? Leanne Kramidis is a professor at Virginia Tech. She's been looking into questions around water inequity in the region, I spoke with her about what she's found. So we're talking because of a study that you and your team did in McDowell County, West Virginia. Tell us about what the study was and and kind of what y'all were looking for.
1: I have been studying roadside springs for a long time. If you drive around Appalachia, I'm sure you've noticed people with their jugs collecting water at Roadside Springs, and several years ago, I started researching the water quality of those springs and why people value them. And then that led me really to look at people's home water quality, because when you see people collecting water, doing the effort, water's heavy to go get water out of a pipe coming out of the mountain. You wonder, well, do they have water in their homes? And kind of surprising to me, my original hypothesis, right, you're a scientist, you got to hypothesize, was, oh, well, these people don't have water in their homes. And that's why they're choosing to go to these springs. In reality, the majority of the people that we have gone to their homes and interviewed and taken home water samples, they have water in their homes. They can turn on the tap and water comes out, but it's not water they trust or it's not water that meets federal guidelines.
0: Yeah, I can't think of the number of times I've gone into someone's house and I'm like, can I get a cup of water? And they're like, yeah, but drink this bottled water.
1: So it's interesting because a colleague of mine really helped me with some of our survey work because he said, you're going to find out that everyone's using bottled water anyway. And that, not to get ahead, is really the second phase of this study as we're looking at the health and economic implications of having to rely on bottled water. Because you have water in your home. But you can't use it, and we all know that there are food deserts. McDowell County is the only place, I think, in America where a Walmart failed. So you have to drive 30, 45 minutes just to go somewhere to buy your bottled water. It's an added cost. Bottled water is 2,000 times the cost of what you get out of the tap. And so what does all that mean, to, especially for people who don't have huge household incomes?
0: So how did you all research this question in McDowell County?
1: We worked with some community groups and community contacts, and we really, it was a door-to-door. So we'd go to someone's home and say, would you like free water quality testing? One of the things that's really important to me is, uh, another colleague always calls it the democratization of water science. So if I collect a water sample from your home and analyze it, I give the data back to you first. That data isn't mine, it's yours, it's your exposure in your home. We collect. Collect water samples, and then do a short interview about typical water use, reliance on bottled water.
0: What did you all find in this initial round of results?
1: The most obvious thing is that, especially for homes that are reliant on private water systems, so people in Appalachia get pretty creative. I mean, all over the country, we see private wells and private springs, but folks here also have cisterns. They have other ways of routing water into their homes. The most common contaminant we see is coliform and E. coli, which are bacteria that if you had them in a centralized system, it would cause a boil order because it means that there's potentially fecal contamination, there's a health risk. Uh, In homes that are reliant on public water, we didn't see that because chlorine is kind of a miracle worker. We did see high levels of salt and some things that can make water taste funny in some homes. But the more interesting thing that I found as a water scientist, is there's this kind of new idea called multiple water use, which is that we imagine that people in their home, you turn on a tap and that's the water you use for everything. But actually people are making a lot more subtle choices. You might use bottled water to drink or to use for cooking. You might go collect spring water for coffee or for making tea. And then you use the tap water for cleaning. Or maybe you have two different wells or a cistern, a rainwater cistern on your home and a well so that depending on the weather and which water you perceive as better, you use those. So people are really ingenious, but this is a lot of mental work. That's a lot. It's not just turning on your tap for everything. You have to think about which water you're using for what purpose. And that's an idea that science is only just now realizing, I mean, it's a reality people in Appalachia have known for hundreds of years, but it's something we're just realizing makes exposure really difficult to measure.
0: I'd like to go back to this question of spring water, because I knew for, uh, for myself and, and a lot of people, they just think that water from natural springs tastes better. You're actually doing some research. Is spring water better to drink? Than bottled water or tap water?
1: No. So the problem with spring water is that it's generally not truly spring water. We have this idea that it's groundwater, and so it's protected from all the gross things humans are doing on the surface. But because of the underlying rocks and geology of Appalachia, it's often not even truly groundwater. It's surface water that is sunk under the ground and reemerged lots of places where we sample what people think are springs, they're actually outfalls from historic mine sites. Now, ironically, some of those flooded mines have pretty decent water quality because they're so deep. But most springs, 80% of the springs that I've sampled have E. coli in them. And so that is the same as if you were out hiking on the AT or going camping, you would want to boil that water before you used it. But it looks great, right? And it's in a beautiful setting and it doesn't taste like chlorine, but it really does not meet health guidelines.
0: How about the, how about bottled water? Um, I I know a lot of folks will swear by especially particular brands of bottled water, But in the Virginia Tech article about your findings, there's some question about that.
1: So bottled water, this is really cool or interesting for people like me. Bottled water is not regulated in the same way as water that comes out of your tap. So if you get municipal city water, you're paying a water bill, that is regulated by the US EPA and that water system has to, for better or worse, has to monitor for certain contaminants. Bottled water is regulated by the FDA and is totally different and doesn't have to necessarily meet the same water quality standards. They also don't have to make any of their data public. So lots of us don't notice this unless you're a nerd like me, but once a year, if you're paying a water bill, you get a letter from your water system with a consumer confidence report saying, here's what's in your water. Here are the days where it didn't meet standards. Here are things you can do. might be kind of incomprehensible. If you're not used to this, you can always call your water quality operator. They'll go through it with you. You don't get that with bottled water. They don't have to, whoever's bottling it is not required to make public the data on the water quality. And it doesn't have to meet as stringent guidelines, particularly for things like lead. From what we've sampled so far, in terms of our Less exotic water quality contaminants like E. coli and lead, bottled water seems fine. It's just really expensive. In terms of things like microplastics, we're learning that bottled water can have a lot higher levels of things like that, which makes sense. It's in plastic. And we don't really know what the health impacts of that are. But my biggest concern with bottled water is the environmental impact because creating all these bottles. And it's just very inefficient, and very expensive.
0: What are some of the implications for this study and what you found?
1: So one of the most important things for me in doing this research is that we've had some national level analyses talking about the term is plumbing poverty or water inequity. And Appalachia frequently comes up bright red as somewhere that is challenged by this we don't really talk about what that means in terms of the human impacts. What is the lived experience of being in a place with plumbing poverty? And that means extra time waiting at a spring. It means extra health impacts because you're exposed to water that doesn't meet guidelines. It's just the the indignity of having to spend your time juggling different ideas of what water you can serve to company versus yourself for this use to make baby formula. And so characterizing what is it, what does this actually mean? What I hope is that this motivates long-term investment and also creative investment. The way that we typically create water infrastructure in America with these long water lines, it might not work for Appalachia and people there are creative. How do we take that creativity and make sustainable, healthy water systems that meet needs?
0: Leanne Kramidis, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us. Thank you. That was Leanne Kramidis. She's a professor at Virginia Tech. Later in the show... Inflation hits hard in eastern Kentucky, which is still recovering from last summer's
5: flood. I've personally seen people have buggies of essential things. They come to check out and they see the total, and then um, you got to put some of those things back because they can't take them home with them because they just don't have the money.
0: You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
3: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply.
4: I hate that slogan. Ohio is, has nothing to do with the South ever. Has never had anything to do with the south ever i find it odd that we have latched on to southern culture somehow just because we're in the southern part of our state um, to me seems like totally uh, opposite direction of like you know what how we identify historically as a state you know um so no clue really that that was ever a slogan to begin with and I totally hate it
0: this is an excerpt from a film titled Peerless City. It's a documentary about Portsmouth, Ohio. The city has alternatively been described as the place where southern hospitality begins and ground zero for the opioid epidemic. Filmmakers Amanda Page and David Bernabo wanted to go beyond slogans, though. Inside Appalachia producer Bill Lynch recently spoke with him about the film and about Portsmouth's complexity.
6: First, Amanda, David Tell me a little about yourselves. Uh, so I'm David Bernabo. Uh, started making films in 2013, looking at artist process. Um, after that, uh, was about 12 feature-length films focused on like food systems, food justice. Uh, two different composers, Blue Jean Tyranny and Matthew Rosenblum. Uh, history of the site-specific art museum, the Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh. What probably ties in with this is I met uh, John Miller, former Wall Street Journal reporter. And he was interested in making uh, a film about the town of Moundsville, West Virginia. And then that kind of led me to meet Amanda and uh, work on Peerless City.
7: And this is my first film. This is how I became a filmmaker. During the pandemic, I happened to see Moundsville on PBS and I was talking about it on Twitter. And John reached out and he and I got to talking. And then that was like, then we had a group call on Zoom. And um, I asked David to hey, let's do this for Portsmouth, and he so graciously agreed, and um, yeah, it went from there.
8: Why Portsmouth, Ohio?
7: Well, I'm from Portsmouth. Everything I do is done with a lens on Portsmouth. I've always been really interested in place, and I think that probably comes from growing up in Portsmouth.
5: With something like this, where do you start?
7: Well, I, <laughs> I started with my um, weird relationship with where Southern hospitality begins, I had discovered it. It was a thing in my town when I was 16. And then it weirdly shaped my life. And I'd been trying to write an essay about it for like 20 years. And then the opportunity to do this film, all I really knew about screenwriting or anything was three acts. My brother had told me about Peerless City, and I had been paying attention to a bunch of guys who have been referring to it as the comeback city. And I'd had been I'd also been paying attention for a lot of years, like other th- other things we've tried. Like there was a moment where um, a pastor in town tried to get City of Prosperity to catch on, the Atomic City for the the Pikedon um plant but um those were the three that really kind of captured my imagination the most so we got together david bernabo me and three humanities consultants got together to talk about who we would need to speak to about kind of like under the umbrella of each of those and um took it from there
5: what do you hope people will take away from your film
6: these these kind of films are kind of tricky to make because you're trying to encapsulate uh, centuries of history of a town so i i think the slogan perspective is really interesting because it'll It allows three things. It allows you to talk about three thematic areas, uh, kind of a a pre-industrial time, a post-industrial time, but also kind of allows you to look at different segments of the 20th century also. So it provides that linear pathway through the city, which is, as far as editing the film, it was very helpful to have some sort of structure to kind of hang all these disparate stories off of. One thing to take away is that you have many different personalities and many different experiences encapsulated within the town. And within that, you have systemic things that are placed on citizens of a town, but you have individuality that allows this business to uh, exist or, you know, this garden to emerge from, you know, one person's passion. The one thing we were trying to do with Moundsville, and I think it comes through in Peerless City, is that, you know, a city is not one person. It's not uh, Republicans. It's not one sort of uh, ideology. It's multifaceted, it's expansive, it's kind of an infinite uh, realm of possibilities. And I, th- I think that would be, you don't have to take away something so grand, but maybe something within that spectrum, we could
5: take that away. A timeline as far as when you produced this, when did you start?
7: Oh, we met in like June or July of 2020. I incorporated the nonprofit production company in late July early August applied for the first grant then got that grant and then we had our planning meeting in like October I think um with the consultants and then just fundraised until we started shooting in May yeah and then May of 2021 we spent time in Portsmouth shooting
6: It was right after the vaccine came out, which made me very happy.
7: Right. And it was like this like renaissance. Like, I don't know that we would have seen that many people even on Front Street if the vaccine hadn't come out after that time. So we premiered it. So that was that summer. And then from June to March, we premiered it at the Vern Reif Center for the Arts in Portsmouth, March 2022.
6: Yeah, two shoots in Portsmouth and
7: one in Nashville, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. For two interviews. The the um, place marketing experts were both in Nashville. I think we felt it was important to have so, um, a couple people comment on why city slogans are even important in the first place. And that was someone I talked to in Portsmouth when I was explaining the concept of the film to, to them. They were like... City slogans, who cares? And I was defensive and was like, Well, I do, and Ohio Humanities does. <laughs> but then it got me thinking, we discussed it. And I was like, well, this is probably something we want to address.
5: How do you feel like this relates to other cities?
7: I want to think that there are other people out there who notice the slogan or nickname of their city and wonder if it resonates with them and with others. And you know, I there's a lot there's a lot of digging that can be done just in a nickname or slogan. But um and I think that this film will get people thinking about that, I hope. My other thought is, you know, there are a lot of Rust Belt cities who've been hit hard. I mean, besides Moundsville, it's part of the reason I love Moundsville as I immediately related to it. And I thought there was so much wisdom in it from the people who were speaking. And I think that was, you know, really, really well done that it becomes conversation, a conversation starter. I think that you can see people from Rust Belt cities, smaller towns, anywhere that has lost population to, the state capitol, <laughs> they will see themselves in this film. So,
5: Amanda, David,
0: thank you very much.
7: Thank you. Thanks so go. much.
0: Peerless City airs this month on West Virginia Public Broadcasting. It's available online at pbs.org. By the way, Amanda Page is one of our new Folkways reporters. We're looking forward to sharing her first radio story soon. We've reported previously on Inside Appalachia about healthcare shortages across the region, including nurses who play an important role in clinics and hospitals. Appalachian health reporter Emily Rice recently looked into the nursing workforce in West Virginia.
9: According to the West Virginia Hospital Association's Workforce Report, nursing is a critical hospital workforce that saw shortages prior to 2020. It also receives the most attention as the largest workforce in the hospital. In West Virginia, nursing professions have a vacancy rate of 19.3 percent and a turnover rate of 26.3 percent. During the pandemic, the topic of travel nurses and other roaming hospital staff became common in everyday life. According to To experts, travel nurses have been an integral part of healthcare for a long time. Annette Ferguson is the director of the School of Nursing at Marshall University. She said training for travel nurses is the same as training for traditional RNs and LPNs. And typically with a traveler they have to, of course, have the same training. As far as, you know, they have to be licensed, they have to have a degree. Um, A lot of times in the past, they had at least have at least a couple years experience working at the bedside. Jim Kaufman, president of the West Virginia Hospital Association, said hospitals nationwide have used temporary staff during times of particular need.
10: You You may see a surge in flu in one part of the country and they may need additional staff. That was not uncommon. During the pandemic, you really saw a huge increase in the demand for traveling staff.
9: The problem, according to Kaufman, is that the salaries for those nurses skyrocketed, putting more pressure on hospitals to retain staff that might be seeking other opportunities, putting the hospital in the position to hire traveling or outside staff.
10: Because they were using travelers as well, that cost went up significantly. You're seeing that significantly ease now that the pandemic's over, The demand for travelers has significantly come down.
9: Dr. Clay Marsh, WVU's chancellor and executive dean of health sciences, agreed, noting some hospitals hired back their own staff as traveling nurses at a higher rate when agencies stepped in.
8: And because of the acute shortage of care providers to be able to keep all the hospital units open and operating, and particularly because of the severity of illness, then hospitals really had no choice but to hire a number of these travelers, even if some of the travelers previously were members of the hospital staff and they had to rehire them back at much higher prices.
9: Now that acute need is reduced with people being vaccinated against COVID-19, leading to less severe cases and hospitalizations, Marsh said the nursing industry looks similar to pre-pandemic openings and hiring needs.
8: While still have the numbers need to be refilled and, and, and equilibrated back to what we saw before the pandemic, the acute requirement for nurses to serve in crisis kind of situations related to COVID has, uh, has reduced and therefore the number of travel nurses has reduced. And at the same time, we've continued to train more nurses.
9: Efforts are underway to attract and retain nurses through increased recruitment campaigns and educational programs. According to Kaufman, hospitals are getting creative by running junior nursing academies.
10: I know a couple of hospitals are doing those this summer, working with high school students to expand their awareness of health care. A lot of uh, hospitals are offering scholarships or tuition assistance.
9: Ferguson said she and other nursing experts are reaching out to high schools and even middle schools to provide pathways to a nursing career. So we're really trying to reach out to um, counselors at the different schools. We're trying to get in there and talk to them, you know, have different faculty go in, you know, talk about whether the different roles of nurses, what can they do, because there's so many opportunities. Jordan Reed is the administrator of the West Virginia Center of Nursing. She said incentives like the West Virginia Nursing Scholarship Program are helping staffing shortages among nursing specialties. The West Virginia Nursing Scholarship Program provides scholarships to students seeking their LPN or RN certificates and master's or doctoral nursing degrees.
8: And that program gives scholarship money um, for nurses all the way from LPN, all the way through graduate uh, nursing students. It gives them scholarship funds in exchange for them completing service obligations in the state. Um, we did an analysis back in August of 2020 that found over 88 percent of the completers of that scholarship program are maintaining a West Virginia nursing license. So we found it's a very good retention tool to keep nurses in the state.
9: As communities and hospitals alike adjust to the healthcare industry post-pandemic, experts are hopeful for West Virginia nursing prospects. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston.
0: Prices are up on everything from cars to a can of beans. Recent reports show inflation's down from what it's been over the last two years. But people are still feeling the pinch, especially in places like Letcher County, Kentucky, which is still rebuilding from last summer's devastating floods. W.E.K.U.'s John McGarry has this. On an August weekday just after noon,
10: Business is steady at the Isom IGA lunch counter. Some get theirs to go, while others take their meal to the small dining room facing the parking lot. Ten yards away, at a slightly slower pace, customers ring up their groceries at cashier-staffed and self-checkout registers. Kenneth Mullins, raised five miles down the road, is one of many who are very glad the flood-stricken IGA reopened in April. Until then, he was making 90-minute round trips to Pikeville or Virginia for groceries. The gas money he saved from shorter trips is being spent elsewhere.
2: I'm 73 years old. I'm on retirement anyway, so I, I feel sorry for the young people, you know, around here. Things are double now than what they was two years ago uh, around here, and poor people, you know, they just can't afford
10: it. Ernie Cottle, who lives in nearby Jeremiah shares those concerns.
5: Well it's not easy because I'm I'm retired and we're on a fixed income, so that does you know it doesn't make life easy, that's for sure. Gas prices, everything going up.
10: Diana Adams says she moved to the Isom area when she was twelve. She's sixty now and looks after two grandchildren while their parents work. She says her food bill has tripled since the beginning of the pandemic.
1: I can go all day
6: long without eating, it don't bother me, but you know, they're like you got to have breakfast, then you gotta have snacks, then they want lunch and you know And you're not going to turn your grandkids down. You're going to provide them for what they want.
10: Philip Breeding lives in nearby Blackie. He says he traded in his six-cylinder vehicle for a four-cylinder to save money on gas. He says, I don't buy like I used to, and I don't go like I used to. And notes some pandemic-era support programs have ended.
2: I sure wish the government would start helping people more. They need it so bad, especially in this part of the country.
10: What would you like to see done?
2: They need to help the poor people, you know. Homes, shelter, stuff like that.
10: None of the four blame the Isom IGA for their prices. Unprompted, two praise store co-owner Gwen Christen for her many kindnesses. She began working there 50 years ago, and 25 years later, she and her husband bought the grocery. Their son, Simon, is the manager. He says their store isn't large enough to make room for loss leaders that the bigger groceries have and that it hurts to see their customers cope with higher prices.
5: I've personally seen people have buggies of essential things like milk and water and they come to check out and they see the total and then um, you got to put some of those things back because they can't take them home with them because they just don't have the money. Um, So it's just, it's so hard to see.
10: Simon says they won't let anyone go hungry. Statistics show the rate of inflation is half of what it was in June of last year, but try telling that to people still recovering from last year's flood. Ask for solutions. Bill Caudill suggests term limits for members of Congress. Others suggest wholesale changes on Capitol Hill and the White House. Whatever the solution, until things get better, many folks in the Isom area will continue to abide by Kenneth Mullen's motto.
2: Just watch the way you spend your money and uh, hope for the best.
0: I'm John McGarry in Isom, Kentucky. Washington County, Pennsylvania, is one of many Appalachian communities that's been transformed by oil and gas drilling, especially since hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, became widespread 15 years ago. That's led people there to wonder if fracking is what's causing childhood cancer cases. Scientists from the University of Pittsburgh conducted a study and announced they have found a link between fracking and serious health effects but they stopped short of linking the cancer cases. The Allegheny Front's Reed Fraser reports.
11: The research had been much anticipated among local families of childhood cancer patients who lived near natural gas operations. In 2019, the families had gotten the State Department of Health to fund studies into fracking and potential health impacts. Jim Fabizak of the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health presented the findings.
8: For childhood cancer, we found that children who were living close to active wells or near many wells um, had a higher risk of developing a cancer called lymphoma.
11: Lymphoma is a relatively rare cancer of the lymphatic system, part of the body's germ fighting network. The researchers reported a five to seven times increased risk of childhood lymphoma for those living within a mile of one or more wells. Raina Ripple co founded the Southwest Pennsylvania Environmental Health Project as a response to concerns over fracking. She said she was not surprised by this finding and expects more to come.
1: This study is just the tip of the toxic iceberg, and we are only just beginning to understand what is out there. I see no sign that fracking is stopping um, or even slowing down.
11: Many in the crowd wanted to know whether the scientists found any link between natural gas activities and a spate of rare pediatric cancers in Washington County. Fabizak said they had not. We did not find
8: any increased risk for other childhood cancers, including the Ewing's
11: family of tumors. This conclusion baffled some parents whose children contracted Ewing's sarcoma, which affects about 200 children and young adults in the U.S. a year. A total of six cases have been reported in one Washington County school district. Christine Barton's son was one of them. My son Mitch is a Ewing sarcoma survivor, thank God, but so many have not survived this. And I'm going to tell you, I know a lot of people in the community, there are kids right now that are sick. The authors analyzed nearly 500 cases in the state's cancer registry across eight counties in southwest Pennsylvania over a 10-year period. They compared that data to oil and gas infrastructure near the child's address. Some questioned the study's methods, including whether all of the rare cancer cases were counted. Heaven Sensky is with the Center for Coalfield Justice.
7: Some of the cases that were local were not cited in the cancer registry properly. And that's really important here because that's how they did the study. They looked at cancer registry data and residences of those folks that was listed in that data, and we know that it's flawed. We've known it's flawed for years.
11: Department of Health officials said in one case they revised the data set to include a patient that had been listed at the wrong address. They also said they would now review cancer incidents in the area again. Fabizak said the studies were limited because the authors could only use the data sets available to them, like hospital network data and state oil and gas records. In another of the studies, the authors did identify links between fracking and other health problems. People with asthma were four to five times more likely to have an asthma attack if they lived near a gas-producing well. Ned Katire of Physicians for Social Responsibility called this conclusion a bombshell. Asthma is not a mild disease. Asthma is a very serious disease. It's serious in young children, older children, adults. Very few people outgrow their asthma. The Department of Health announced it would offer more educational opportunities to better prepare local health care providers to identify and treat people exposed to fracking operations. Laura Dagley of Physicians for Social Responsibility said that was a good first step, but the state needed to do more.
1: Um, I mean, education is important, but we need more than just physician education. We need um, actual protection for the people um, living.
11: Department of Health officials told the crowd the agency would share the findings with others in the Shapiro administration to consider future action, but offered no details on what those actions might be. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Reed Frazier.
0: The Humane Society is always looking for people to adopt rescue animals. It's hard enough to find homes for cats and dogs, but it's another thing altogether to find people with the space and ability to take horses Recently, the group came to Winfield, West Virginia, to hold the Appalachian trainer face-off. The event showcased rescue and at-risk horses in hopes of finding them good homes. WVPB's Caroline McGregor reports.
12: Sponsored by the Humane Society, the Appalachian Trainer Face-Off competition features horses rescued by non-profit Heart of Phoenix Equine Rescue, either in law enforcement seizures, surrenders or culled from herds residing on abandoned strip mine properties in West Virginia. Part of Phoenix Equine Rescue Group founder and president, Tania Creamer, came up with the idea for the event during a conference to explore ways to help vulnerable horses. It's become the largest horse event in the state of West Virginia, which we're particularly proud of because it's a rescue event. So to elevate adoptable horses and rescued horses to the point that they are the premier event with the largest number of people attending to see them in the state was a big deal to us. The face-off features trainers from across the country, Country who work with rescued horses, some of which are at risk of slaughter and showcases horses of all breeds, ages and backgrounds. Creamer says many of the horses have had limited training or never been handled at all. The event started in 2017 and grew rapidly, with trainers coming from all over the U.S. to compete. Uh, this year we have trainers from Mississippi, we have Minnesota, we have judges from Texas, judges from New York um, on Long Island, from Georgia... The event even attracted the wife of legendary California horse trainer Monty Roberts, who trained Queen Elizabeth of England's horses. The face-off begins in May, when the names of participating trainers are drawn at random. Each trainer chooses from a pool of horses and has 100 days to train the animal to compete in three divisions, including the technical division. This focuses on basic horse handling such as haltering and leading the horse, picking up his feet, loading and unloading, saddling and riding at the walk, trot and canter. Judge Carl Bledsoe from Georgia says it's all about the relationship between the horse and trainer.
3: We've already seen one horse that was actually not as confident as some of the rest of them and he got through the course a little bit better because he really was connected with the girl that was handling him and he was going on his trust for her rather than his knowledge of being able to do the particular task.
12: About 250 horses have been adopted since the Appalachian trainer face-off started in 2017 with more than a million dollars raised so far in funding. The event runs through Saturday, August 19th at the Winfield Riding Arena in Winfield, West Virginia. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Caroline McGregor in Charleston.
2: my darkness since you left I had all of love revealed to me now there's only there
0: I walk these halls
2: like a prisoner Save me from myself. They tell me stories
12: you've gone crazy. I could use a little help
1: myself.
0: Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by the Dirty River Boys, Hot Rise, Hank Williams Jr., Ron Molinex, Susan Tedeschi and Derek Trucks, Tim Bing, and Noam Pickleney. Bill Lynch is our producer. Xander Alloy is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.
3: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and 6 master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.